Uh, turn with me to Titus 3. We're going to finish up Titus today and uh, pray uh, with me, for me. Uh, we're going to finish out the summer and uh, just look at some, some selected psalms. We'll spend the, the rest of the summer each, each Sunday looking at a particular psalm. And uh, um, also pray with me. I, I'm, le- I'm leading towards, I'm le- leaning towards rather, um, studying uh, Deuteronomy. And you say, that's a long book. We're going to do it in chunks. I promise you we won't be in there for six years. Uh, we're going to do it in chunks. And, and we're going to look at it from the standpoint of the character of God. You, you see a great picture in Deuteronomy of the character of God and, and why, gave God, why God gave the law and what He was showing us in the law. And it's His character. His character was revealed. And, and He is holy. And, and things have not changed there. And so I want to take a look at that and probably spend about eight or nine weeks and just chunk. I don't, we don't need to parse out every individual law and argue in Deuteronomy 14, 21 on why it says, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk and things like that. That's probably not what you got up this morning hoping you would have discussed is boiling a goat in its mother's milk. And so uh, I, hopefully none of us are struggling with that today. If you are, you can see me afterwards. And so um, I don't know what I'm going to tell you other than stop it. But anyway, we can still talk about it. So uh, t- to, Titus 3, Titus 3. And uh, I, the reason why I, I want to be careful that we're balanced between the New Testament and the Old Testament. I want to make sure we're balanced because the New Testament builds on the Old Testament and we, we need to see that. that God has not changed. He's been very consistent. So do, Titus 3, 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes and about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I sent Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me and Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Pray with me. Lord, by your grace, might I speak your word today. Not my words, but your word. I pray that I would not go any further than this word takes me. I pray that I would not distort the word to say what we, need to, what we want to hear, but rather I would speak it truthfully to hear what we need to hear. And Lord, I pray that the same thing would be true of us. Not only would we learn to engage in good deeds and defend the gospel, that that would be what we do do. That we are a people who defend the gospel and are engaged in the right things. We defend the right things. Bless this time and be glorified in it. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. And that is, that is exactly what we see here at the end of Titus. It, it, is a, it is a call to defend truth. And when truth is perverted, when truth is distorted, when, when people err from that truth intentionally, willfully, wantedly, that we must discipline them. We must be willing 
to go after them and discipline them. And that is what Paul teaches here. He has said it time and time again that we exist uh, we, for a purpose. We've been saved to serve even before in verse 8. He says, be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And what he says right here is the exact opposite. He's showing that what they're doing and what some in their church are doing is not profitable and is not good. They're arguing about things that don't need to be argued about. They're spending a lot of time and an effort and being divisive over things that aren't worth it. And Paul is, is bringing them back. And, and, and the fact is that we have truth. This Bible is true. We'll see that today. And we were called to defend that truth and to share that truth. But we need to be careful that we understand the clear truths of Scriptures and which ones we can be dogmatic about and which ones we can't be dogmatic about. The Bible is true. And if you know me well, you know I love doctrine. I'm a defender of doctrine. But I want to be wise enough to understand which ones we can disagree on and which ones we can't disagree on. And so that we can still walk hand in hand. And if someone wants to make an issue out of a non-issue, if someone wants to leave the pure gospel that we have of Jesus Christ and distort it and go some other way, we must be a people that go after them. We must be a people that confronts them to defend the pure truth of the gospel that is through Jesus Christ alone. And, and that, is, that is somewhat of the undercurrent of what, of what Titus is saying here, and that's where I, I want us to see today. The, the first point there on your handout that I want us to see is the church exists to defend the truth of the gospel. The church exists to defend the truth of the gospel. Now, that is not exactly what Paul says here, but it is a, it is a true statement that undergirds everything that Paul says here. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he writes that the church is the pillar and the support of truth. What we hold in our hands, what we have been gifted with, what we have been entrusted with is truth. We are to be about this truth. The, the primary, that primary spiritual truth in the Bible is that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of sinful humanity. That is the primary truth. Salvation is found in no one, no place, no thing other than Jesus Christ. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve in sin, God tells them, Satan... I'm going to bring forth a Savior. You're going to bruise His heel, but He's going to bruise your head. From that point on throughout history, Satan is looking for that one who is going to destroy him. And he is attempting to disqualify individuals from being that Savior. And all throughout the Bible, you see God carrying that seed to, to Jesus Christ. That is the primary central figure. It is God and it is Jesus Christ. It is God providing salvation for sinful humanity. That is why we have this book. Primary truth. That, the, that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who in the flesh gave himself up to die for the penalty of the sins of the whole world. That salvation has been procured. Whether you accept it or not by faith, that's between you and the Lord. But salvation is there for the taking. God has put His Son on a cross. The, the wonderful gospel that we share is that God offers a complete, 
pardon and eternal life for anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus alone. That's the truth. A pardon. That, that, that we, must, we must proclaim that truth. We must herald that truth. We must defend that truth. That believers individually and the, corp, the, the church corporately are entrusted with not only defending but sharing that truth. That Jesus Christ is the alone way for salvation. It comes from no one else. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. And we live in a world that, that hates exclusive statements like that. We live in a world that despises the fact that salvation, that we would say that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, that other religions are wrong and we are right. So the world hates that. They hate the fact that, that, that the Bible would put forth that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And we see many uh, false religions out there and their man's attempt to form religion how they would want religion to be formed. And invariably, it's, it's a kind of a, a hodgepodge. It's man-centered. It's based on man's efforts. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. The, the world will want us to know there's many ways to heaven, that you just need to be sincere, that you, you just need to be just wholehearted about it, that you know there are lots of ways to get to the same result. That's not what the Bible says. And, and our job is to defend that. The Christianity, salvation, it's not a buffet approach where it's a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, a little of that. And, and it, it, truth matters. And, and the Bible says that we have the truth. And, and the, the, the unfortunate reality is all these man-centered attempts, they're, they're just more idolatry. It's man's attempt to get to God on its own. And at the end of the day, who we end up worshiping is man. Man ends up being worshipped. We make us the center. You see, and th- th- what we must understand, though, is that religion is about truth. It's not about preference, it's about truth. What we have here is not about preference, it's, not about, it's about truth. Religion is not a matter of tradition. You're, you're not a Christian because that's the way you grew up. You're a Christian because you believe in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't get saved through tradition. And religion is not about tradition, it's about truth. And Christianity, the Bible, claims to be the truth. John 14, 6, he says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. My word is truth. Christianity is about truth. It's not about preference or tradition. Even here in, in Titus, we've seen it. In verses 1 and 2, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of the, of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort the sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's been Paul's theme all throughout, verses 13 and 14. Verses two of 1 of chapter 2, verse 15. There are not a lot of ways to get to heaven. There's one way to get to heaven. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need to be dogmatic about that. And more and more in our world, we're caving on that. And what Jesus makes is an amazing claim. When He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is an astounding claim. Crazy claim. 
Right there in one statement, he has said, all religions are not equal. He has said, other religions apart from Jesus Christ being the central focus and the only way to heaven are false. False. They're lies. And you think about that very statement you hear in the world, oh, well, there's lots of ways to get to heaven, that all religions are true. Think, think about that. That can't be true because they contradict. Go, go talk to a Muslim about Jesus Christ. He's not going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is, is God's one and only perfect son. He's not going to acknowledge that. He's not going to acknowledge his deity at all. That's just, that's just Islam and, and Christianity right there. They're, they're contradict about the truth of Jesus Christ. They can't both be true. Either God exists or he doesn't. Either Jesus Christ is fully man, fully God, and the only way to heaven, or he isn't. They can't both be true. You see, the issue is truth. Someone's wrong. And truth is at stake here in Christianity. It's truth that we're fighting for. And, and this is the most important truth, the most important thing in all the world. Either Christ is the only way or He's no way. He's either the only way or He's no way. He, he does not leave both options open. He, he's either telling the truth or He's a liar. Period. There's no options. And we're not doing anybody any favors by watering down the truth to please them. You're not doing them favors. I mean, who in here as a mom would be happy if their kid came home and said, you know what, my teacher told me that, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's a little exclusive. So 2 plus 2 can equal whatever you want it to equal. You know what, if you don't want the sky to be blue, just let the sky be whatever color you want it to be and you live like that. You, you would not settle for that. Why? Because 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's truth. Because the sky is blue and the grass is green. So my question is, why would, be, we, we, why would we be less dogmatic about that than we would about the truth of Christianity? The reality is because is we believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 more than we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. If we're honest. And we offer no room, the Word of God offers no room for options. I mean, what if you went to the doctor and he gave you a prescription and you said, what's in here? He's like, yeah, I don't know. It might be right. Just take it and see what happens. You wouldn't, you wouldn't stand for that. What about a surgery? Hey, doc, what are you going to do on me? I don't know. We're going to see. Let's see. I, I think this is the way to cure it, but I'm not really sure. So we're just going to go in there and mess around and try to figure it out. It's truth. I want you to know what's in the bottle. When I take a pill, I want that to be in the bottle. Because truth matters. And, and the, the truth of Jesus is the most important truth in all of history. Because He is the only way to have our sins forgiven. It's the most important truth in all of history. Other, other truths don't affect your eternity. Whether 2 plus 2 equals 4 has little to do with where I spend eternity. It's, a, it's an important truth. And, and you hear it when you, when, you say, when you defend this truth. If you put yourself out there and defend this truth, they're gonna, you're going to be accused of being arrogant. You're going to be accused of being unloving. I've, I've heard people say that, well, God is unloving to send, to send people to hell. God's unloving to, to be that narrow, to, to be one way, one way only to heaven. And, and, and 
Think with me just for a moment when, when, when God is accused of being that, when you're being accused of that, when, when, when you're be accused of being arrogant or unloving or God is be accused of being arrogant or unloving. Th- think with me for just a moment. I want to walk you through the Bible real, real quick and then you tell me if God's unloving or arrogant. So, suppose for a moment God, that God exists. I, and I say that only because there are some people that would argue that God does not exist. The Bible would say the fool says in his heart there is no God, but there are people that would argue that. So suppose, this, just agree with me for a moment, hypothetically, if you, if, you, if you need to, that God exists. Suppose he's perfect in all his ways. So suppose that he, that he created the world and, and, and everything we see, and then suppose that God stooped low and made man in his image. Suppose that God stooped down and made man and, and put his image upon that man. Made it possible for that man, that woman, to, to walk with him, to commune with him, to be intimate with him, that, that he walked with them. Suppose he, he made himself available to them in a, in a relationship with creation, that he allowed man to enjoy everything that, that God was. And suppose one day that creation rebelled. Suppose one day that creation turned its back on its creator. Turned its back and and said, you know, revolted against the goodness of God. Decided they wanted to do things their own way. That they wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. That's really what it boiled down to. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is saying simply trust me. Trust what I say to be good is good. Trust what I say to be evil is evil. And his creation revolted. They sinned. And God told them that the punishment of that sin would be death. It would be banishment from His presence. Suppose God did all that. Even though they knew that that sin would bring upon it devastating effects, they ate. They sinned. But, but suppose God, instead of being done, you know, if, if, if I was God at that point, I'd just said, I'm out, I'm done. But suppose God, being greater than me as He is, said, you know what? Instead of being done and washing His hands of creation, suppose that God picked a small little people that were nobody and said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get glory in that people. And I'm going to love that people. And I'm going to walk that people through history. Suppose God did that. Suppose God revealed Himself to them. Suppose He protected them. Suppose He grew them who weren't a people into a very, very large people. Suppose, suppose that they too rebelled. And instead, of, and instead of saying, you know what, I'm done, I'm done. Suppose He sent prophets. Suppose He sent priests. Suppose He sent kings to those people. Time and time again calling of their repentance. Time and time again bringing them back pleading them to return to worship the only true God, pleading with them, wooing them, forgiving them, restoring the relationship. And and imagine God's people take these prophets and these priests and these kings, take the grace of God, and they kill them. Hebrews 11 says they sawed him in two. That they killed him. They put him in chains. They they massacred him. Imagine, Imagine... some st- sometime later, God takes it a step further, still not giving up on His people. Suppose He takes it a step further, and many years later, God sends His one and only Son into the world. 
that He takes on humanity, that He takes on flesh, that He becomes like the creation, that He could sympathize with the creation, that we would have a high priest who could sympathize with our weaknesses. And He walks with His creation, performs miracles, calls for repentance, calls them to come back, offering the good news of the kingdom. And suppose instead of receiving it, even then, you know how they respond? They respond by mocking God's Son, by spitting upon Him, by scourging Him, and eventually by crucifying Him. And then imagine God responding even then by saying, if you would only believe in my son dying on the cross, you could be saved. I know you're an enemy. I know you're, I know you're separated. But come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Suppose he still opened the invitation. Suppose he said, I put my son there on the cross because in your sin, your sin warranted death. The penalty was death. And instead of you paying that penalty, I put my son on that cross to pay that penalty for you and for the whole world. Now think for me just a moment. Is it unloving then for God to say, look, the only way you're coming to me is through my Son. The only way you're going to have access to me is through my Son. Given the fact that God has done all of that and so much more, are we, are we seriously going to look at God and question the way that He has authored salvation we're going to question whether he's good whether he's loving i mean the way that he's designed are are we going to question that the the more valid question is not is not why is there only one way the most valid question is why is there any way at all why why would god do that Why would God put His Son on a cross for me? Why? I mean, I don't even like myself half the time, much less God who knows me even better than myself. The question is not in arrogance I would look to God and say, why would you you make one way? The question is humility saying, why would you take me at all? Why would you make any way possible for salvation? Why? Why? And God has made a way even when we did not deserve a way to be made. When we have turned our backs, when we continually turn our backs. And God in His grace made a way and then He's given us that truth and He has said defend that truth. Protect that truth. Share the truth. The question becomes this, do we believe the claims of Jesus Christ? When he says in John eleven twenty five 25, that he's the resurrection and the life, he whoever believes in me will not, will live even though he dies. Do we believe that? It boils down to belief. And we are to defend the truth. There's no neutrality. Either we believe Jesus or we don't. E- either he's true or he's not. The issue is always truth. It's not preference. It's not tradition. It's it's not any of these things. It's truth. The issue is truth and an important truth. Eternity hangs in the balance of this truth. Stephen Cole said the following. The Bible affirms from cover to cover that God exists subjectively, apart from our ideas about Him and apart from our subjective experience of Him. He spoke the universe into existence. 
He has revealed Himself in the written words of Scripture and supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh. God is true whether you believe in Him or not and whether you like who He is or not. You can make up a God who is all love, who never judges anyone, but such a God is not the God who revealed Himself in the Bible. You can make up a God who lets everyone into heaven no matter what the person believes, but that is not the God of the Bible. If you believe in this tolerant God, then you have rejected Jesus Christ who taught something very exclusive and very narrow. It's Jesus or nothing. It's not Jesus plus something. It's not a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of something else just in case. It's I believe in Jesus alone. And that is what the church, Paul is saying, that is what the church exists to protect the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In, in a couple of weeks, our boys and girls are going to do VBS, and it is surrounded, it, it is revolving around 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And he goes on in verse 16, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should do will that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You know what he's saying? He's saying, give a defense for the gospel, and no matter what happens, trust Him. Trust Him. If it involves suffering, suffer. Why? Because it's true. Give a defense. The church exists to defend this truth. And we must know the truth and argue for truth, not our own speculations, not our own preferences. We, we, we get divided, and that's what Paul is talking about here. Strifes and disputes and all this stuff. We get divided over stuff that at the end of the day simply doesn't matter in the long run. Truth matters. Bible truth matters. The gospel matters. Some of the peripheral stuff out there in the long run, it doesn't matter in the sense of being divided over it. And I'm not saying... Doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. But, but we get struggle over stuff that's unprofitable and worthless. And, and in verse, look at verse 8. He says, be careful to engage in good deeds. That, that is exactly the opposite of the people that Paul's calling out here. Because the good deeds are profitable. They're good. And he says, arguing over stuff that doesn't matter is unprofitable. It's not good. We can speak confidently about the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ alone because that is the truth. But some of this other stuff, we get divided over what we eat and drink and, and what we wear and, and, and the style of worship and all this other stuff. That stuff is subjective. That stuff is individual stuff. My conscience will lead me in that stuff. But the truth of the gospel... We ought to be dogmatic about that. Sometimes we're more dogmatic about what people eat and drink and what they do and where they go. And, and, and we, we forgo the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we're to be dogmatic about. The gospel. And we are here to, divide, to defend that. And we, we don't exist as a church to argue nuances and particulars. We, we don't have the Bible and theology simply to argue and debate it. We have the Word of God so that we can know God and be in relationship with Him. So that we can know God and be in relationship with Him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom He sent. It's a relationship. 
We have the word of God that our sins being forgiven, we can be transformed to, re to, to reflect the character of our Father. And, and again, if you know me, doctrine's important. I, I, I love to study the Bible. But we, we've got to be wise enough not to allow Satan to divide us over things that aren't worth dividing over. The truth of the gospel, we need to be very dogmatic about Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. And, and what he's saying here is, if I understand him correctly, it's not getting in public debates over these things, over speculative matters, over things that, that aren't clearly defined. It's, he's saying it's a waste of our time. And, and, and you know, the, the we'll be divided over whether somebody's pre-mill or all-mill or this and that. Again, there's a truth there in the Bible, but I'm not going to hate you over whether you're pre-mill or all-mill. Well, who do you say Jesus is? Let's talk about Jesus. The Bible says the fruit of confession for salvation was not whether you were pre-mill or all-mill. It was whether do you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And again, I, I, I love theology and I'll argue with somebody. I mean, we can talk about it, but I'm not going to argue with you or divide over it. We can walk hand in hand. And some of these things, we need to be wise because the world is watching and we're fighting over stuff that doesn't matter. And Satan has distracted us from the mission of defending the gospel. The gospel. And we have the Bible because it is truth. It relays to us the gospel. We are confronted with the truth about God and about us. And these are not things to toy around with or debate. He didn't give us this just, just so we can be answer the Bible trivia guy. He wants to be transformed. Truth is to be taken and obeyed, not debated. That's what Paul is saying. It's to be taken in and obeyed. And he's saying our job is to defend the truth. The church exists to defend truth. I, I, I was studying with some guys um, this Thursday, and we were in John 9, and I love it in John 9 there. It's the, the miracle, the healing of the man born, the man born blind, and, and they're just grilling this guy about who did this and what happened and all this stuff, and he in verse like 24, 27 says, guys, all I know this, all I know is this. Once I was blind, and now I can see. I don't know what happened. I don't know, I don't know the particulars about why he told me to put clay on my eyes and wash in this pool. I can't tell you all the particulars about the theology. I do know this. Once I was blind, now I can see. I do know this. Once I was enemy of God, and now I've been forgiven of all my sins, and it's only through the blood of Jesus. After that, I'm learning. That much I can tell you about. And, and you know what? I can show a person. This is who I was before Christ. This is who I was after Christ. We can talk about that. We can talk about the, the good deeds, the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life. But I, I love that response. I don't know, guys, but I know this. I've been blind my whole life, and now I can see. I know the difference He's made in my life. And we need to defend that truth. We need to verbally, verbally declare that truth. We got home last Sunday from, from church, and, and you walk in, and you're like, ooh, it's a little warm in here. It's about 85 degrees in our house. And we don't keep our air at 85 degrees. Some of y'all might. We don't. Barely below that, but still it was hot. The air wasn't working. So Karen and I are like, well, we're not calling somebody on Sunday because that would be, be expensive to call someone on Sunday. So we're just going to rough it, and uh, we'll make it through the night. I woke up Monday morning. It was about 89 degrees Monday morning in our house. It was awful. 
And uh, so the guy came about 2 o'clock. There's a guy and this girl, his, his girlfriend, and it was about 89 degrees in our house, about 93 outside. So I said, well, I'm just going to go outside. I'm going to talk to these guys while they're working on my air. You know, I could have just been so focused on the air conditioner getting fixed and missed the fact that God may have been using that to bring two individuals to my house to hear the truth of the gospel. My prayer for Rebecca, my prayer next week would be, don't waste, your, don't waste your surgery. If you have cancer, don't waste your cancer. Use it for the glory of God. Use it to proclaim and to defend the truth of the gospel. That's why we exist. In John 9, they ask, why is this man blind? His mother's sins or his father's sins or his sins? And Jesus said, none of those. This man is blind so that I will get glory in his blindness. That man was blind for that one moment that God would get glory in his blindness. The Hale's grandson may have leukemia for that very one purpose, that there's a doctor that he's going to come encounter with that needs to know the truth of Jesus Christ. Whatever I go through may be for the fact that there's an air-conditioned person and his girlfriend that needs to know the truth of Jesus Christ. Cancer, sickness, whatever it is, it's about the gospel. And Paul is saying, defend the gospel. Don't argue, don't get sidetracked with all this other stuff. Be about the gospel. Defend the gospel. But not only that, he says here in our text, when truth, meaning the gospel, when it's deliberately and consistently not obeyed, we must be willing to discipline that believer for not only their help, but for the church's help. If someone is going to distort the gospel intentionally and turn their back intentionally and and try to confuse, we must go after them. If they're going to argue about stuff that's meaningless, we must go after them. And when someone distorts, when somebody, and you can distort something by adding to it, you can distort something by taking away from it. When the gospel is no longer central, when, when they're arguing over the peripheral, when they have a habit of doing this, Paul says, deal with them. And notice what Paul says. Reject a factious man after a first or second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted in sinning, being self-condemned. He doesn't say continue debating him. He says reject him. Some of your translations, the, the word means shun. If all you want to do is argue, I'm not wasting my time. Here's the truth of the gospel. If they're not really searching, if all they want to do is debate, you go find somewhere else. But I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with you a couple times, but he says, he says reject him. Look, look with me at Romans 16. It's for our health individually, but also corporately. Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Turn away. Keep your eye out. The, the word factious here, it comes from the Greek word meaning self-chosen. It's pointing to a very opinionated person. It's someone who thinks they got it all figured out, who thinks their way is the only way, They want to argue over nuances. They're motivated by pride. It's really an issue of pride. 
someone who's trying to cause dissension and gain a following with, from within the church and, and over peripheral views. Interesting enough, in Galatians 5.20, the deeds of the flesh, one of the deeds of the flesh are listed as factions. In, in Titus 3.11, knowing such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. He's saying, look, when you start attacking your godly leaders, when you start doing these things, you're showing your cards. You're showing who you are. You're revealing who you are. Arguing about pointless things, fighting over pointless things, you're, you're showing your pride. It's pride. You're not about the gospel. You're about pride. And the issue is sin. The issue is pride. And, and to not confront these people, to not deal with this, and to think you're being loving is not Loving. It is actually a violation of love not to confront somebody who is sinning. I mean, think about it. To, to see someone destroying their life, trying to destroy the bride of Christ and not confront them, that is unloving. No matter what the world says, stay out of my business, all this other stuff. No, the Bible says to go after them. And that's consistent in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, over and over. In love, we go after them. But there's going to come a time where we're just simply going to reject them. We're not dealing with it. Victor Masters, I read a quote. He said, Sentimentality is the love of man divorced from the love of truth. It cloaks a big lot of hypocrisy and moral decay. You think you're being loving when really it is you're just afraid to confront. Really, it's you're, you're, just, you're, a, you're a hypocrite. It is unloving to not confront. I read this week, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, Nothing can be more cruel than, len than that leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more, co more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. And, and the word Paul uses here in the Greek, it points to this being a constant and consistent Watch, just like what Paul said in Romans 16 when I read for you. It is a, there is a constant tendency for us to take our focus off the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be focused on more peripheral matters. There is a constant tendency for us to, to just be, have a social gospel where we do a whole bunch of good for people and never mention Jesus Christ, divorce it, divorce it from the truth of Jesus Christ. Why? Because everybody would love for us to give backpacks, but don't fill those backpacks with the gospel. Hey, feed me. Feed my stomach, but don't talk to me about Jesus Christ. We're not going to do that as a church. We're not going to divorce these things. We're doing those things so that we have a context to share the gospel. So they can see our good deeds and they will adorn our doctrine instead of us simply giving them school supplies to go to hell with. And, and at every turn, Satan wants us to wander away from the simplicity of the gospel to make it Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus this. No, we're saved through Jesus Christ alone. And Paul is saying, don't mix it, don't, don't add to it, don't take away from it. It's Jesus Christ alone. That is to be the central focus of your attention. And we must, as a church, protect and value doctrinal and moral integrity. That's why Paul is saying this. And the reason is this, because sin is destructive. And it's not only destructive to us as individuals, it's destructive to the whole body. You look in Galatians, he says in Galatians 5, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. 
It destroys the whole lump. A little bit of, just like a little bit of sin in your life, it's going to destroy, it seeks to destroy your life. A little bit of sin that we allow to exist as a community, as a body of believers, it's, its goal is to destroy us. That's why Paul says, deal with it. Look, look with me at Galatians 2, real quick. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read it for... But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul is writing this about Paul. Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in the hypocrisy with the result, listen to this, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Do you see how destructive sin is? But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Paul confronted Peter. Don't mess around with the gospel, he's saying. And don't be hypocrites. Don't, don't add something here, take something away there so it's more palatable. Don't add your personal agenda on top of it over here. Leave it alone. And Paul, it says, Paul confronted him. I love it. He says that Paul confronted him to his face. He didn't send off some email. He didn't post it on Facebook. He didn't tweet about it. You know what he did? He did just what Matthew 18 says to do. He went to him to his face. He met him in his face and dealt with it. Because why? He, they were carrying people away, and we've seen that before. Listen to how John Piper put uh, phrases the gospel, how he describes the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the privilege of getting right with God was purchased fully when Christ died for our sins and rose again, and that the only way to enjoy this privilege is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. If you add other requirements which encourage people to rely on their own willing or working, you torpedo the gospel. For if justification and sanctification are not by faith, they are not anything, and Christ has died in vain. He's saying, stick to the clear biblical truth of the gospel. If the world doesn't like it, they have never liked it. But it's true. And let me give you some reasons real quick why we don't, why we don't often. Clearly we've seen it in 1 Corinthians, Matthew 18, biblical discipline, church discipline, a biblical mandate for it, but why, why don't you see it? Why, why doesn't it take place? Let me give you a couple, and I want you to think about it in your own heart. You may not think within the church setting. Maybe you're thinking about this. Why don't you, when you hear people take the Lord's name in vain at work, when you hear your friends make fun of Christianity or your Lord, or the, why don't you stand up? Let, let me see if some of these fit. Why don't we defend the gospel as we ought to? Number one, we treasure man's approval more than God's. When you treasure man's approval more than God's, I promise you, you won't stand up for God. You'll stand up for man. We treasure man's approval. We're afraid that we'll offend. We're afraid people won't like us. And so what? We stay quiet. We stay quiet. Secondly, we have, compromise, we have compromised morally. We've compromised morally. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. We've seen it in Titus. Our lives oftentimes look so much like the world's that it's hard to know where to start with regards to church discipline. Where do you start? Our, we look so much like the world. 
We've sundered, wandered so far off course, where, how do we even start to come back? But not only that, when we've compromised morally, who am I to go confront this person when we're probably battling with the same thing? And that's what Titus is saying, that our lives ought to back this up. Not only that, we're biblically illiterate. Biblically illiterate. We, we don't know the word well enough to defend ourselves. We're, we're afraid to speak up because we're just not sure what it says. Not only that, the reason why I preach, the reason why personally I preach through books of the Bible verse by verse is because I'm a people pleaser. Many other pastors are. I don't want to avoid the hard passages because y'all won't like them. And, and see, what we do is create a, a, a biblical illiteracy in our people that they don't know what the Bible says about the tough doctrines. We dealt with some tough things in 1 Corinthians, things that I wouldn't have just plopped down in for a one-off sermon, but preaching through a book, it forced us to deal with them. We don't want to be biblically illiterate. We want to deal with the tough passages, even if we don't like it, even if we don't, it doesn't make us feel good. We need it. We need to be able to defend 1 Peter 3.15. That's what we'll be doing in VBS, helping our kids to defend the truths of Jesus Christ. Lastly, why don't we, why don't we defend? Because we're more interested in having big churches than we are with having pure churches. We're more interested in having big churches than we are with pure churches. I, I'll, just, I'll be very honest with you. That's, that is the temptation in, in the pastorate. It's to tell people what they want to hear, to tell them how they want to hear it, to avoid the tough things, to tell them they're all doing great, to tell them why, because they'll keep coming. And you'll have a big church. And when you hang around with your other pastor friends, I've never once had somebody ask me, hey, how's your church, how pure are you? Every time I get around them, they say, how many are you running? How big are you? That's what they want to know. And by worldly standards, I'm measured in my effectiveness on how big we are. Guess what? In God's standard, you know how I'm going to be held accountable? How pure you are. How pure you are. We, we could have 10,000 people here and not live one day for the Lord. And in the world's eyes, I'll look like an utter success. Matter of fact, I guarantee you, if we get to be 10,000, my phone's going to ring off the hook from other churches in other cities wanting me to come be their pastor because I apparently got it figured out. One thing I know is this, we gr keep growing like we are gradually, but we're pure. I don't have to worry about other churches calling. Because we measure ourselves by size and not by purity. And, and we have budgets that demand that we keep people. We can't run people off. We got budgets that, oh, budgets can't afford to people leave. We, we, we exist to be pure. You go to Ephesians 5, that his bride would be white, spotless, without wrinkle, pure. We need to make sure we measure things the way that God measures them and not the way the world measures them. And if someone in our church is promoting peripheral matters as if they're the most important and they're doing so and being divisive, we need to prayerfully confront them. Matthew 18, individually, one-on-one. -on -one. It doesn't mean you come tell me about it. No, if you hear about it, you go tell them about it. If they don't want to listen, then you take two people. If they still don't want to listen, then you come get me. If you come to me first, I'm going to act like I didn't hear it. Because it's unbiblical. 
Now you're gossiping. Go deal with it. And hear me, the goal of church discipline, check your heart. When you go to confront somebody, the goal of church discipline, the goal here, it's always redemptive. It's not to point out their flaws. It's not to be a tattletale. It's not to be the spiritual police. It's to be redemptive. It's not always, look, when you confront people, I've had to confront enough people in my short ministry. Sometimes it went well. Sometimes I lost friends over it. Okay. God was pleased. Sometimes, sometimes I did it well. Sometimes I'll, I'll own it. Sometimes I didn't do it well. Sometimes I loved the person so much I got emotionally. Sometimes I didn't do it well. I've asked God and that person to forgive me of that. But don't be afraid to do it because it might not work. Trust the Lord with it. Because the impurity and the integrity of the gospel is at stake. We've seen that. Chapter 2, we saw that time and time and time again. Our goal is to bring the person back to the true gospel and to focus them on godly living. Look at verse 14. Paul closes with that. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. The goal of our life is fruitfulness. It's for what is profitable for the gospel. Don't get caught up in all these peripheral things. In Galatians, the issue was circumcision. Today, it's, it's, it's all kinds of other lifestyle choices. I don't think we're fighting and dividing over that. We're fighting over other stuff. And the theme of good works, listen to me, the theme of good works, Titus has 46 verses, 46 total verses. Six of those talk about good works. Six of those, 46, more than one in every eight talk about the overflow of Jesus Christ in you flowing into the lives of others. Good works. One in eight. And they have to be taught. That's why we're, that's why we, we do that. That's why we're offering the summer of service. That's why we're offering um, July 23rd and we did the soul hope and we, we're, we're going to the, the, the sheriff's youth ranch August 2nd and we're going to the Dominican. I'm trying to help us learn good works. Learn good works. I, I read a quote this week as well from a guy named Thomas Odin and he said this. Think about this. Only those who take sin seriously take forgiveness seriously. Only when we take sin seriously will we truly take forgiveness seriously. And that's why I walked us through what God has done. Only when we understand and comprehend the gravity and the greatness of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ Will we take the gospel seriously? Will we value it above all else? Will we defend it with even our life? So the application, the, the takeaway, th think about this. It's a lot easier to debate theology, to argue about theology and its finer points than it is to love your wife as Christ loved the church, than it is to submit to your husband. I think that might be sometimes why we get caught up in arguing over the finer points instead of living it out. It's much easier. It's much easier for me to argue with you over a, a seemingly minor point than it is for me to do what the clear truth of the Bible says, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
So let's argue about something over here. It's easier to debate or argue about theology than it is to love your children and bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Or to be a good worker at your job or to live a life that's yielded to the, to the Spirit on a daily basis. I'm not saying theology is not important. I'm saying we can't get caught up in arguing about that and not living out the true points that we know that we're to be doing, the points that give a context for the gospel. And we can't be a people who, who argue and have theological debates as a convenient cover for sins such as pride and anger and selfishness and impatience and laziness. Sound doctrine, when it's understood, leads to a submission to our King. When rightly understood, doctrine will lead to submission to God, to living out a life that is glorifying to God. And speculations that don't lead to that, we're going to set aside. So I ask, is there any area of your life that is not surrendered to the glory of the gospel? Any area of your life that is preventing you from speaking out, maybe into someone else's life or sharing the gospel? Any area of your life that you know you have not surrendered to the Lord and it's preventing you from sharing with your friends because they know that about you? Any, any area. What, what, what's keeping you from surrendering that area? Are there any areas of your life where maybe you're focused on the wrong things? Maybe with your free time. Maybe with your finances. Any area of your life where you're, you're, you're focused on the wrong things. You're seeking glory in the wrong, for the wrong things. What of that list, what keeps you from being willing to come alongside somebody and confront them when needed? Fear of man? Is your own immorality? Is it you don't know the Word of God? What, what is it? What, what keeps you from taking a stand for the gospel? What keeps you from sharing the gospel? And here's my greatest fear. We'll sit here and argue over details. And the same person will never once verbally give a testimony to the gospel. They'll argue to the death over the details. And they will never once tell somebody the truth of the gospel verbally. I think ultimately that's what Paul is would be telling us today if he was here. We can get so caught up of arguing the finer points of theology and miss the reality that we exist to tell others about the gospel. 